The focus of our study will be Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, specifically, but I do want to read verses 23 through 26 again, where we started last week to uh, situate ourselves here. Verse 23, And Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, come now and help us. Holy Spirit, come and teach us. Lord Jesus, stand closely beside us. I pray that if we would be leaning on any idols today that we would have to, to set them aside and lean on Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. I want to review very quickly what we studied last week in these four verses because I think the main point of this passage is something that we can very quickly gloss over when we begin to unpack other applications. So first remember that in verse 23 we looked at or we saw the truth stated in verse 23. And the conclusion there was based on our Lord's words is that the rich young ruler is not alone. It's a universal truth that any rich person will find themselves in the midst of a great struggle as they try to let go of their wealth and cling to Christ. That's going to be very difficult. Then we saw in verse 24 the truth illustrated. The, the idea that a rich person would enter the kingdom of God is actually an impossible proposition, just as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's, that's what he's teaching. It's impossible. He illustrates it there. Then in verse 25, we saw the truth appreciated by the disciples. They, they realize what he's just said. They, they are greatly astonished, physically uh, altered, flabbergasted, we might say, because of what he said. It's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And, and so they asked, if not a rich person, then who? And then in verse 26, we saw the truth illuminated. He takes the, the positive side of that negative truth and he gives it to, them, it to them. With man, it is impossible. Their question, who then can be saved? If that's merely a man-given question that has to be responded to by men, the answer is nobody. It's impossible. But with God, 
Because God has entered into the equation, it is possible. With God, all things are possible. And we saw that we are all idolaters from our birth. And that salvation, again, if it's dependent upon men, it's impossible. But since salvation is not dependent upon men, but upon God who has mercy, it's possible. Even for all of us idolaters, when it was impossible, God has made it possible. And again, I want to start with that and make sure that's clear from the beginning. Idolatry is idolatry. And all men are idolaters. Man cannot save himself. But God can and does and has saved idolatrous men. He has accomplished the impossible. And so now I want to address some applications or maybe secondary truths that we can glean from this text. Look again at verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now the question I want to ask is, why is it that our Lord specifically points to the rich as those for whom salvation is impossible? Now we could say, well, look at the context. He's talking to a rich person, therefore he addresses the rich. But again, he doesn't say only with difficulty will this rich young ruler enter the kingdom of heaven. He's a rich young ruler, so he doesn't say only with difficulty will a ruler enter the kingdom of heaven. And he doesn't even say only with difficulty will a young man enter the kingdom of heaven. He says a rich person in general. He gives an exhaustive statement concerning those with great material wealth. Why? We do know from Scripture that there are some sins that are considered worse than other sins. We know that Scripture teaches that there are greater degrees of punishment for certain sins. So why does our Lord make this statement about a rich person or rich people, wealthy people? Or to ask it another way in order to, to set up the application for ourselves, what is it about the nature of material wealth that makes it a deterrent to salvation, a deterrent to saving faith? We know that material wealth is to an extent necessary. We have to have it. With, without money, without something in your hand, some possession, you won't live. So should we just take this statement and avoid it at all costs? If we, if we happen across some prosperity, we get rid of it really quick like a, like, like a disease? In other words, how should we think about material wealth in such a way as to avoid its snares while also being wise with the physical lives entrusted to our care? God wants us to take care of ourselves and take care of our families. So how do, we, how do we do that? And that's what I want to talk about for the next three weeks is, is, is that idea. So today we're going to talk about the perils of material wealth. In other words, I want to answer the question, why is it so dangerous? Why, why must we be on guard, as it were, with regard to material wealth? The next week we'll look at the procurement of material wealth, something that I would imagine most Christians have never thought of. But in what ways is it appropriate to get money? Does the Bible address it? Is it just however you get it, get it? 
Or are there, is there a biblical uh, instruction for that? And then, and then the third week we'll look at the purposes of material wealth. In other words, what are the appropriate uses? Where is it okay for me to spend my money? So today, then, we'll look at the perils of material wealth. That might be the title if you want to write that down. The perils of material wealth. This will be sort of the theological support for such a focused study. This is not three steps to financial security or three steps to financial freedom. It's just a theological foundation for why would we consider material wealth. So, the perils of material wealth. Perils, that word is defined as the dangers or difficulties that arise from a particular situation or activity. Dangers, difficulties. So when we ask or when we're studying what are the perils of material wealth, we're asking what is the main danger? What's the difficulty? What's the problem that arises from obtaining, maintaining, and stewarding Material wealth, that's getting it, holding it, and getting rid of it. What are the dangers? Why is it such a big deal? Again, why is it easier for a rich person, or for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, I would suggest that at its root and distinguished from other forms of idolatry, that material wealth represents to men all that is at odds with the life of faith. Material wealth represents to men all that is at odds with the life of faith. Now when I say material wealth, am I talking about excess? No, I'm not. When I say material wealth, I mean money in your wallet, Money in your checking account that's more or less just a figure in a computer software with a bank. Do I mean, or I also mean money that you might have invested in the stock market. You can't touch it. You can't go and grab it, but it's, it's yours. Material wealth would be houses or lands that you have that are of value. Again, you can't go and spend a house, but it's worth something. Perhaps possessions that you have that are technically on loan from the bank. You're making payments, but they're in your name. You're going to be upset when they come to get it. That's, that's, it's yours. I would also include in this category every little creature comfort inside your home from a floor to a Keurig. Everything that you own would be under the category of material wealth. Every ergonomic novelty in your car... Money that you have set aside for future spending or, or trips and well-made plans that are going to cost money where you'd say, well, I have that money, but I don't really have it because I can't spend it. It's designated. It's still yours. You have it. It's, it's a, it, it is under the umbrella of your possession and your ownership. I would also put under this category of material wealth personal time that you spend acquiring money, whether it's your job or maybe something extra, an extra cash venture that you set yourself out on to get money. You've devoted a part of your time to getting material wealth. And then I would also put in this category anxiety and stress 
of monies not yet earned. Because some people, again, are under the impression that whenever we begin to talk about material wealth, they say, well, you're not talking about me because I'm struggling to make it as it is. I can't do it. You could be just as much an idolater of finances as the person who has all they could ever want and more. All of these things, I would say, material wealth, represent to men all that is at odds with the life of faith. Now, did I say material wealth is inherently bad or sinful? No, I'm not saying that. None of the things I listed are inherently sinful. I said they represent all that is at odds with the life of faith. Am I suggesting that a Christian, a true Christian, would never have what we consider material wealth? No, I'm not. I'm saying that these material possessions, material wealth, represents to man all that is at odds with the life of faith. And that's why material wealth is specifically pointed out as a barricade to salvation, possibly more than anything else. Now again, we could ascribe this all the way down to the root again as just idolatry, like, like all men. It's, it, it is an idolatry. But why is this idolatry so dangerous? Why would the Scriptures admonish us and teach us how to steward a thing properly if there did not lie within the possession of that thing the tendency for misuse and sin? Material wealth represents all that is at odds with the life of faith, but it does not force us to be at odds with faith. It's like owning a copperhead snake as a pet. Must you be bitten? Must you die? No. But you better be careful how you feed it and how you, how you contain it. So we have this balance that we have to maintain. And I want to explain that. And hopefully you can follow my train of thought here because this is sort of a very quick thought drawn out long to, to make it sense. Why would I say that material wealth, in the words of Christ, mammon, represents to men all that is at odds with the life of faith? Why would I say that? Well, the first subheading, capital letter A here, I want us to understand the necessity of faith in the Christian life. The necessity of faith in the Christian life. We would begin here with sola fide, faith alone, justification by faith. The immediate fruit of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is the work that we call Conversion. You remember, conversion is a two-part work. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. That faith, produced by the Holy Spirit, He gives you faith. You act or you respond with faith. And that is the means by which the justifying work of God is applied to your heart. You're not declared righteous prior to saving faith. And it's not your job to muster up saving faith. It proceeds from a new heart. At the moment of saving faith, we are declared righteous through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So, Galatians 2.16. Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now when we see that word justified, remember... It, it's literally declared righteous before God. We could read that, declared righteous. 
A person is not declared righteous before God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, in order to be declared righteous by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. No one will be declared righteous before God based on something, anything they did. There's no salvation outside of that truth, outside of faith in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely necessary and the Holy Spirit produces it. Those who would add to faith, that's why we say sola fide, faith alone. Those who would add to faith as a means of justification are outside of Christianity. Roman Catholics are outside of Christianity because they would add to faith. Egyptian Christians, Coptic Christians, you remember the video, they're on the beach, they're getting their heads cut off. They're not Christians. They add to faith. Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, the Roberts family, Duck Dynasty, the Campbellites, they add to faith. They're not Christians. No matter how conservative they seem to be because they add to the faith. They say, Campbellites, for example, would say you must be baptized by a Campbellite minister in order to be right before God. That, that's a work. If we're, if we're going to add to the work of Christ, then the work of Christ is pointless. And so these, this is crucial. Sola fide. Faith is produced and thus it is a necessity, a necessity at the moment of regeneration and conversion. We begin the Christian life with faith. The second part or point under that would be the life of faith. Again, we're, we're looking at the necessity of faith, justification by faith, and then the life of faith. Now, this is one of the aspects of Christianity that we Protestants very often uh, set aside or forget. Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 2 through 3, three let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, he's writing to those who profess faith in Christ, who are almost, they're on the verge of capitulating to the Judaizers, for the maintenance of their salvation through works of the law. And he's arguing against the absurdity of that false gospel. He's saying, you started with faith. Now are you going to now leave faith and go back to works to try to maintain that? He said, you started with faith, now continue with faith. You started in Christ alone, now continue in Christ alone. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live, he says, in the flesh by faith. His daily life after conversion was rooted and grounded in faith in Jesus Christ. Now we believe in synergistic sanctification. That means once you're justified before God 
In Christ alone, by His work alone, He gives you faith. No works. At that point, God will produce works. He works in us to produce. We're working together, synergistic for our sanctification. So the idea in sanctification of, of let go and let God, well, we don't believe that either because God helps us. And we also don't believe in me just working alone for my sanctification. I've just got to do it. No, it's, it's through obedience and faith. Striving along with the Holy Spirit, we will be made into the image of Christ. So we continue in faith. So the Scriptures are clear that faith is a necessary ingredient in the justification and sanctification of sinners. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, there is no salvation. If we add to faith for our justification, we leave Christianity. If we substitute our faith with pure works for our sanctification, we leave Christianity. Faith is a necessity in the Christian life. Alright, now let's look at the second subheading. This would be capital letter B. The definition of faith. The definition of faith. The question at this point, hopefully, is, well, what is faith? Faith is the fruit of regeneration. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is required. It is a necessity. But what is it? Is it something that I do? Is faith something that I just sort of grit and, and, and drum up within me a, a feeling or an emotion or a... What is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice he doesn't say faith produces assurance. He doesn't say faith produces a conviction. He says faith is the assurance. Faith is the conviction. Notice in this verse there are things hoped for and there are things not seen. That is to say there is in this great unfolding of redemptive history in the past and in the future unfolding of the promises of God with regard to His people and the earth and, and the resurrection and eternal life and eternal punishment, there is a compendium of realities and truths that we cannot see. We can't watch. We can't touch. We can't hear. We can't smell. To our outward senses, they're nothing. They're, they're, we might consider them intangible. They're not seen. There are promises regarding heaven and eternal life and eternal punishment and a new earth we've never seen. No one's ever went there and come back to tell us about it. We're simply hoping for them. The scripture also says, who hopes for what he sees? This idea of hoping for something and not seeing for something is almost, they're, they're synonymous. There's this Christianity. It's supernatural. It stands apart from the natural world. But it's also supranatural. It transcends the natural and the supernatural, both realms, in ways that we can't see. We can't touch it. We can't smell it. We're just hoping for something someday. We're longing for it. We read the scriptures of events in the past and we, we weren't there. We're, we're trusting in things that we can't see. And the, the writer of the Hebrews is saying... The faith that God gives at regeneration 
is the assurance. It is the conviction. It is the substance or the evidence of these unseen, hoped-for things. It's not just believing that they exist. That's pagan faith. Just step out on a limb and trust. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith is the proof that they exist, for it too is unseen. But you know it's there. You wake up and you believe. That's faith. It's, it's known to the believer only. Faith is not something you do. It's not an emotion you exert. It's not a dogmatism you stand on and say, well, I believe in order to achieve some future work of God. I'm, I'm believing so that God will move a mountain or whatever. That's not faith. That's, that's taking the focus of the object of our faith and, and transferring the focus to us. That makes it something we have to do. That's not Christian faith. Faith is the gift of God to you. It is the reality that what God has said is true. You see, present spiritual truths and future events are only unseen to the natural eye, but they are to us known and seen and felt to the, the eye of faith. We know it. I don't doubt whether heaven is real. I don't need anybody to write a book about it. I, I don't doubt it. Faith is not what we produce in our hearts to help us cope with the unknown. Like, I'm just, I'm just trusting, but really it's more like a doubt. I'm, it's, it's against all odds. Faith itself is evidence that the unseen and the hoped for is real. Because there is that which is unseen. There's that which is hoped for. How do I know that it's really there? Because the God who told me it's there also put faith in my heart. He produced that there. He, he planted the Holy Spirit within me as the earnest of His promises. Hoped for, not seen. Think about that. Hoped for, not seen. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't touch it. Faith is the substance. Just like my marriage license is the evidence and the substance of the legality of my marriage to all who were not there, who were not witnesses, so faith in the heart of the believer is the evidence and the substance of the validity of God's Word to all who are not eyewitnesses to the events in history or to the promises to come. Faith is not something you do any more than a marriage license is something I do. No, I got married. The, the marriage license just proves to everybody I, I am married, you see. Faith is that. How do I know I'm saved? Because I believe. How do I know I'm elect? Because I believe. The faith is there, you see. It's not something you do. It's something you, that God gives. And so by its very nature and order, Christianity is sometimes just called the faith. That's what it is. Christianity is the faith. We're, we're justified by faith. We walk by faith. And our entire worldview is shaped by the promises of God which are most often still future, intangible, and contrary to our earthly existence. Faith is a necessity in the Christian life. So it's a necessity. Hopefully we're sort of beginning to understand what it is. We have so much history of, of unbiblical faith that when you begin to try to think of biblical faith, it's almost impossible. But I pray the Holy Spirit would help us to understand this. What faith is. Okay, now, 
Faith is a necessity. We know what faith is. The evidence of things hoped for, the things not seen, the things not here. So then what is the opposite of faith? Material wealth represents to men all that is at odds with the life of faith. All that is the opposite of the life of faith. So what is the opposite of faith? Now some would immediately respond and say unbelief. But unbelief is still an assertion regarding things not seen and things hoped for or not hoped for. The opposite of faith, if faith is the evidence of things hoped for, not here yet, and unseen, then the opposite of faith would be a heart and life permeated with or motivated by a worldview shaped by things seen, characterized and driven by things presently held. It's here. I've got it now. You can see it. You can touch it. You can verify it with all of your outward senses. It would be naturalism and imperialism would be the opposite of faith. Naturalism, that, that, that idea that the only thing that exists is what I can see and touch and prove. Empiricism would be the, uh, the idea that knowledge, the only knowledge that there is, is, the only, is knowledge that can be proven by my outward senses. So it does not require faith for us to know that if my house payment is $500 and I pay $500, my house payment will be paid. That's not faith. That's just math. That's, that's common to all men. It does not require faith to invest in the stock market and then sell when the stocks are up and make a profit. That's not faith. That's just the stock market. It's probability. It does not require faith to know that if my power bill is due next week and I put back $50 this week and $50 next week, then I put them together and I'll be able to pay my power bill. That's not faith. That's... Again, common to everyone. Now, are any of those scenarios inherently sinful? No, not at all. That, that, I'm not describing sin. I'm not saying material wealth is sinful. I want you to see that it stands in front of us and represents to us everything that is the opposite of faith. Faith operates in the unseen and the hoped for. Material wealth operates in the realm of the seen and the now. But I, I've got it. The sin comes in when we begin to trust in these seeable, measurable, quantifiable, logical deductions as a way of life. And we allow them to dictate our lives and how we think and how we operate. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice that he does not condemn the rich. He doesn't say, as for the rich in this present age, ask them, how in the world could you possibly be rich and claim to be... He doesn't say that. He says, don't set your hopes on riches. In other words, don't set your hope in a life permeated with, motivated by, a worldview shaped by all of the things that you can get with your riches. Faith is to characterize the Christian life. Remember, it's necessary for justification, it's necessary for life. 
And here's the rub. The natural man, apart from Christ, his life is characterized by and driven by present things. Present things. Not excess, not lavishness, not luxuriousness. Just earthly. Just things now. You can be poor and, be, and have your life driven by getting now. Things which you can see and touch and hold to now. Things which provide security and pleasure and comfort now. Now what is it that will help you obtain security and pleasure and comfort now? What will provide for you the things that you want to see and touch and hold to now? It's material wealth. It doesn't have to be bad, but it represents it. Thomas Manton says, The corrupt heart of man is all for present satisfaction. Now, what will get you present satisfaction? Material wealth. Things now. Things seen. Why did Esau sell his birthright? His whole future. Because he's hungry now. He said, what good, is it me if, what good is that to me if I die? I need food now. I'll do whatever it takes to get it now. I need it now. I'm not going to wait but the Christian lives a life based on someday. That's the way we think. That's our operation. Our, our, entire, our entire worldview is shaped by what happened in the past, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on our behalf, and someday. That happened then and someday. But the unbeliever lives a life based upon now. And so therefore that which can get us the very thing we want more than anything, present satisfaction, represents to us all that is at odds with the life of faith. Again, must it produce in us worldliness? No. Must it be guarded against strategically? Yes. Like owning a pet copperhead. You just got to watch. It doesn't have to bite you. They don't have to kill you. You just got to be careful. A black widow in, a, in an aquarium doesn't have to kill you, but you better be careful how you feed it. It's the same with this. These things must be juggled because we are citizens on this planet, in this nation, and at the same time, citizens of God's kingdom. And so we have to juggle the necessity of faith every single day with the need for a certain level of material wealth. We have to have something. We have to juggle these things in order to guard against the idolatry which makes it impossible to enter the kingdom of God. We have to have some wealth in order to live, but we may not cross the line into idolatry. So where's the line? How do we do that? How do we cultivate that? Well, the answer is by developing a biblical worldview with regard to our material wealth. In other words, we just do what God says to do it with it. The problem comes when we say, well, God says that, but I think I might try this. And, and we're surprised when we get caught up in idolatry. We just do what God says with it. And that leads us to the fourth heading, subheading, capital letter D, naturalistic comforts and biblical instructions. Naturalistic comforts and biblical instructions. And this, again, I'm, I'm setting the stage. I want to point out some of our false assumptions, some of the things I think we believe that are false. 
very often we think that the scriptural specifics with regard to generosity or charity or worshipful giving of offerings will lead us to a life that is saturated with purely naturalistic comforts, present satisfactions, which are the opposite of faith. In other words, we think, if I do what God tells me, He will give me, that He will lavish upon me the very thing that will draw me away from Him. We think that if we obey God with our finances, that that, that will lead to the American dream. We've heard Malachi's prophecy preached so much with regard to tithes and offerings that we develop a worldview that says, I will give so that God must open up the heavens and, and, and pour out His blessings upon us. And so in essence, we, we put God in debt to us by sliding Him a tithe. Like God needs a dime of our money. It, this is a soft... If somebody tells you, you are to give so that God will blank, that is nothing more than a soft form of the word faith or seed faith heresy. Do this so that God will do that. And for some of us, that's probably why we give. We don't like to and we don't want to. We're, we're just afraid. I'm, I'll give money because I'm afraid God's going to do something to my money if I don't do it. We give, but we never expect that our giving might stunt our personal spending. We think those two must always perfectly coincide, bringing me to my temporal happiness. Or we might be charitable, but we assume that my necessities come first so that charity could, would never intrude upon my needs. God would never expect me to give this much because, well, I mean, I'm already struggling myself. And He wouldn't have me to struggle more, so I can't do that, this or that. We might desire to prepare for the future, put back some money, save for our children, an inheritance or whatever. And so we assume that any present spending might intrude upon that. And so we say, well, I would spend for this or that. I would give this or that. But, well, then I'll be having to reach into my savings and God wouldn't want me to pull for my savings because God is really pretty set on my savings being this amount by the time I retire. In other words, we seem to think that because God has given commands with regard to our material possessions, on the one hand, and God has promised to provide for us everything we need, that the only way God can provide for us is in the same way that the materialistic world provides for itself. That God's going to provide for me, that means I'm going to have a car like my neighbor. God's going to provide, that means I'm going to live in comfort like my neighbor. God said He would provide for me, so I have to have a good job. God's provision must only lead to at least three meals a day. God will provide, so I have to live in an air-conditioned home. I mean, God provides. Can you not see how that is different only in quantity from the prosperity gospel? We think we deserve a standard and God will never fall below that standard. Don't go to another country, a third world country, and tell Christians, God said He's going to provide for you. Why don't you have air condition? Why are you worshiping in the dirt? Why are your kids starving? They're trusting. They're believing in God. And so we take the prosperity gospel... 
and we bring it down to middle class America so that we can live our lives not by faith but just by simple logical reasoning and math that will provide for us a comfortable living. We think that's what the Bible teaches about money. We sort of forget the part that Jesus didn't have anywhere to lay His head and all of the disciples were martyred and throughout church history Christians are not wealthy, lavished people. Not by, not by divine mandate, but just by truth. It's just, just look at history. And we need to understand this. And this is what I hope to prove over the next couple of weeks. Money and possessions, material wealth, is given to us by God to be stewarded by His principles for our own, hear this, cautious maintenance and for the advance of Christ's kingdom on the earth. Not to achieve our dreams. Not to live in comfort. Remember, our aspirations are set on a, another world, another life. Why would we devote everything we're doing into being comfortable now? Matthew 6 verses 19 and 20. We all know this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Notice our Lord does not say, if I were you, I would not lay up treasures on earth. He doesn't say it would probably be better if you didn't lay up treasures on earth. He says, do not. Do not. Don't. Why is that hard to understand? Is, is there anything confusing that I'm not seeing here that y'all see? That when he says, do not, I think it's simple. Do not. We might put those words together and say, don't. If our kids, if we tell our kids, do not do this, and they immediately do it, we say, you've disobeyed. Pop it. You've disobeyed. And yet we hear, do not lay, and we strive and strive every day of our lives for treasures on earth. Because God would never have me to be struggling. God would never have me to, to not have everything I dream of. And we do. For most of us, we have everything we dream of. And at nighttime, we just dream of how we're going to get the next thing. When material wealth, whether owning it, stewarding it, or trying to get it, begins to call the shots in your life, either in direct contradiction to the commands of God or just in place of the commands of God, it's become an idol. I can't do this. I've got to work. I can't go there. I've got to, do, I've, I've got to have this. I, I can't spend that. I've got to have this. When money begins to dictate everything you're doing, that's an idol. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, stewarding it or getting it, keeping it or spending it. God's people are dictated by God, not a piece of paper with a man's face on it. And yet we, we are bound by this. The Christian's life is not to be dictated by these other or these worldly things, but by otherworldly, unseen, hoped-for perspective, knowing God's promises are sure, His Word is true, and His kingdom is forever. That's what we're living for, you see. So am I teaching that money and possessions are bad? No. Not at all. 
But I would suggest, and again, I, I hope this is the plan. If you compile a quick theology of material wealth from the Scripture, you will find that God expects His people to use their material wealth in ways that coincide with their faith. That is, they are consistent with the reality of another world. And that will most often contradict a naturalistic worldview. Now, whether or not you can live by faith and have material possessions and wealth, that's between you and God. I can't dictate that. Abraham did pretty good. Job was doing fairly well. It can be done if you're an Abraham or a Job, which I would imagine some of us probably think we are by the way we do our money. We use that as an example. You say, well, Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Are you Job? No, you're not. You're not Abraham either. And so that's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is just compile a biblical theology of material wealth in order to gird up our hearts, to, be, to, to protect from the idolization of material wealth, just like the rich young ruler. Some of you are already in your minds. I know it. You already think, you're, you're already convicted. You were convicted before you came in today about the way you spend your money and the way you spend your time. And, and, and so you're thinking about it and you've already decided, well, I know I'm not going that far. I, there, I, I will, you know... We'll get together and maybe we can bump up our giving to 11.3%. But there are some things I won't do. I'm not going here. I'm not doing that. I won't, I won't get rid of this or that. Idolization happens just like with the rich young ruler. Whenever we say, God, I'll do this, but I won't do that. There are some things I just won't do. There's no way that God could be commanding me to do this or that. That reveals your idols. So... As we turn to the Lord's table, we have to go back to faith. As Christians, our faith and our hope lie not in this present world, not in things we can see or touch. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Our faith and our hope rest in the reality of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of a first century Jewish carpenter. That, that's where our hope is. We're trusting in the promise that the Holy Spirit of God has taken that work and applied it to our hearts. So as we examine ourselves, is that where your faith lies? Is that where your hope lies? Are you resting upon a crucified Savior? Are all of your hopes resting on a bloody Roman cross and an empty, borrowed tomb? That's the Christian perspective. What would your checkbook say if I asked... It. If I just flip through it and say, so where is this person's hope? Where is this person's trust? Where, where are their treasures? So examine yourselves and then we'll come to the Lord's table.